I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This episode of American Biography is brought to you by new patron Ryan. Ryan has joined the ranks of sustaining patrons that have pledged to support the podcast by subscribing through our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash ambio. That's A-M-B-I-O. If you'd also like to help keep the show going and qualify for patron-only bonus episodes, please consider visiting our Patreon page and signing up. Thanks again. Now on to the show. Hello, welcome back to American Biography, a member of the Agora Podcast Network. This is episode 24, Treason. Last time, we saw impeachment as a political weapon of reprisal disposed of following the failed attempt to remove Justice Chase, as well as the beginning of a thaw in the relationship between Congress and the federal judiciary. Few could have guessed that even then, events transpiring far away were inexorably moving, longtime antagonists, Chief Justice John Marshall and President Jefferson, onto a collision course. Now, Aaron Burr's name has popped up from time to time in our narrative thus far. There was a time when the New York attorney's future was so bright that, if they were invented, he'd have had to have worn shades. But then in 1800, he went ahead and created a constitutional crisis after unexpectedly tying Thomas Jefferson's electoral vote tally and refusing to step aside. This hadn't exactly ingratiated Byrd to the new president and resulted in the isolation of the new vice president within the Jefferson administration. With his career stalling and facing the prospect of being pushed out of the most insignificant office ever conceived by the minds of men come re-election time, Burr mounted a failed gubernatorial bid in New York State, the fallout from which led to his killing Alexander Hamilton in a duel in July of 1804. One bright spot for Burr came from his constitutional role as President of the Senate, where he'd won some praise for his even-handedness as the presiding officer of Chase's 1805 impeachment trial. And this, at least, carried the almost certain knowledge that had bugged the hell out of Thomas Jefferson. By April 1805, the former vice president was jobless and facing the stark reality that he'd burned a whole heck of a lot of bridges. In Republican circles, his name was mud for his double cross of Jefferson in 1800, and in Federalist circles, his name was mud for killing Alexander Hamilton. Earlier in his life, Burr had been a brilliant trial attorney, and one might have thought he'd just returned to a lucrative career in the private sector. Only, he couldn't return to his home or practice in New York because there were warrants out for his arrest there, as well as in neighboring New Jersey, both related to the duel that killed Alexander Hamilton. Wanted, infamous, indebted, but always a charmer, Burr needed to get away for a bit, so he headed west into the newly acquired Louisiana Territory. Working some old connections and leveraging his celebrity, 
he was able to lease some 350,000 acres of land in the Washita River Valley in southern Louisiana, west of the Mississippi, known as the Bass Trap Track. And he began to recruit people he'd always maintain to farm and settle these fertile lands. But Burr was a man with a reputation for controversy and intrigue, and soon whispers began to swirl around his western dealings, with opinions differing between whether he was looking to break off a chunk of the United States and rule it as his own personal fiefdom, or whether he was aiming to liberate Mexico from the Spanish and rule it as his own personal fiefdom. Official warning eventually made its way back to Thomas Jefferson by March of 1806, when the Federalist U.S. District Attorney for Kentucky and John Marshall's brother-in-law, Joseph Hamilton Davies, wrote to warn him of what Burr appeared to be up to. Jefferson didn't exactly ignore this early warning. He showed it around to the cabinet and even encouraged Davis to keep digging for information at first. But as follow-up reports contained more gossip and hearsay than fact and indicated a growing circle of suspicion comprised mainly of prominent Kentucky Republicans, Jefferson became wary of Davis's possible political motivations, as well as the prosecutor's relation to Marshall. Despite Washington, D.C.'s cooling interest, Davis plunged ahead and convened a grand jury to charge Burr with treason. However, with the help of a local up-and-coming attorney, Henry Clay, the jury declined to indict. It wouldn't be until the end of October 1806 that sufficient corroborating evidence from additional sources fell into place, and Jefferson began to mobilize against what now appeared to be a Western conspiracy with Burr at its head. Finally, on November 27th, Jefferson made his move by announcing, via a national proclamation, the existence of a conspiracy against Spain and commanding all civil and military authorities to be vigilant in searching out and bringing to Kendine punishment all persons engaged in such enterprises. While this public proclamation named no names, Jefferson was personally arriving at the conclusion that Burr's intentions were treasonous, and he was helped along by Burr co-conspirator and all-around corrupt human being, General James Wilkinson, military governor of Louisiana, who was neck deep in all of this, but, by virtue of his position, knew suspicions were high in the capital, and was now transitioning into full-blown self-preservation mode. He arrested two Burr intimates, Eric Bowman and Samuel Swartwoot, whom he then transferred under armed guard to Washington, D.C., ignoring several writs of habeas corpus for their release along the way. Once in D.C., Bowman and Swartwood were arraigned in federal circuit court, charged with treason, and denied bail. On January 22nd, Jefferson issued a special message to Congress, informing the body of the known facts of the conspiracy and outlining the plot as he understood it. The message, however, became extraordinary when, in the midst of it, the president revealed that the evidence is chiefly in the form of letters, often containing such a mixture of rumors, conjectures, and suspicions as renders it difficult to sift out the real facts and unadvisable to hazard more than general outlines, strengthened by concurrent information or the particular credibility of the relator. In this state of evidence, delivered sometimes, too, under the restriction of private confidence, neither safety nor justice will permit the exposing of names, except that of the principal actor, whose guilt is placed beyond question. Sometime in the latter part of September, I received intimations that designs were in agitation in the Western country, unlawful and unfriendly to the peace of the Union, and the prime mover in these was Aaron Burr theretofore distinguished by the favor of his country. Here Jefferson's obtuseness amazes me. He was a trained and experienced attorney, yet somehow, despite admitting the evidence was a mix of rumor and conjecture, Jefferson was so sure of Burr's guilt that he announced it certain beyond question. Reading about all this from his home in Massachusetts, former President John Adams whose own bona fides as a trial attorney included securing the acquittals of the British soldiers responsible for the Boston Massacre, 
presently observed that even if Burr's guilt was as clear as the noonday sun, the first magistrate of the nation ought not to have pronounced it so before a jury had tried him. In the shadow of the President's proclamation, Charles Lee, counsel for alleged Burr co-conspirators Bullman and Swartwoot, petitioned the Supreme Court for a new writ of habeas corpus. The petition immediately raised two separate questions that needed addressing by the court. Question 1. Did the court have the authority to issue a writ of habeas corpus? Question 2. Could Bowman and Swartwoot be tried for treason in the capital anyway? On February 13, 1807, Marshall delivered the opinion of the court. Regarding the first question, he stated that the power to award the writ by any of the courts of the United States must be given by written law. And he pointed to section 14 of the Judiciary Act of 1789 as giving the justices of the Supreme Court explicit authority to issue writs of habeas corpus. Now you might remember that in Marbury v. Madison, Marshall had invalidated a part of the Judiciary Act of 1802 because it unconstitutionally enlarged the original jurisdiction of the Supreme Court to allow them to issue writs of mandamus. And this had been brought up in oral arguments in Ex parte Bowman, so the court was aware that it had some explaining to do. And the rationale it laid out was that, unlike in Marbury, which had been a direct appeal to the High Court, Bowman and Swartwood's case was appellate in nature, and was therefore a revision of a decision of an inferior court. Congress did indeed have the power to adjust the court's appellate jurisdiction, as it had done with habeas corpus in the Act of 1789, but it still could not, as the court had previously held in Marbury, adjust its original jurisdiction, as the Act of 1802 had attempted. And so the court could, if it wished, issue a writ of habeas corpus in this case and maintain consistency with Marbury. The court's authority to issue a writ of habeas corpus thus established. Next came the question as to whether the federal court in Washington even had jurisdiction over the accused and whether or not the evidence was sufficient to continue to hold a prisoner on a charge of treason. After four inconclusive days of argument, the court permitted the prisoners to post bond. The justices unanimously agreed Washington, D.C. was not the proper jurisdiction in which to try the pair, and all but one agreed that the evidence to support a charge of treason against Bowman and Swartwoot was wholly inadequate. Marshall's decision used the Constitution's definition of treason to support this position. This reads, Treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them, or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. Therefore, his thinking went, in order for the pair to be guilty, war must be actually levied against the United States. However flagitious may be the crime of conspiring to subvert by force the government of our country, such conspiracy is not treason. But, wanting to narrow this line of reasoning a little bit, Marshall further clarified the court's position by writing, it is not the intention of the court to say that no individual can be guilty of this crime who has not appeared in arms against his country. On the contrary, if war be actually levied, all of those who performed any part, however minute or however remote, from the scene of action, and who are actually leagued in the general conspiracy, are to be considered as traitors. But there must be an actual assembling of men for the treasonable purpose to constitute a levying of war. And this explanation of treason pretty closely hews to the idea of constructive treason, the traditional view of treason as understood in English common law, which essentially states that an act in a normal case that would make a person an accomplice, in a treason case, makes them a principal. So it seems here that Marshall is saying treason charges could totally be brought against all parties involved in a treasonous conspiracy once an overt act of rebellion had taken place, no matter where they are. But, but, there had to be an actual overt act first. The conspiring itself wasn't enough. There were factual realities that also complicated treason charges against Bowman and Swartwood. 
As the Chief Justice points out, the available information indicated the conspiracy was aimed at Spanish Mexico, and while this might be a high misdemeanor, as the subversion was aimed outwardly and not inwardly, treason it was not. Then Marshall considered the pains the framers had gone through to so precisely and narrowly define the prerequisite for treason within the Constitution. There had to be testimony from two witnesses to the same overt act, or a confession in open court. These were missing from this case entirely. So in his words, it is therefore more safe, as well as more consonant to the principles of our Constitution, that the crime of treason should not be extended to doubtful cases. Now, essentially at the same time as the Supreme Court was releasing Bowman and Swartboot, Burr himself was confronted by local authorities near Natchez in the Mississippi Territory, and he surrendered himself peacefully and consented for the boat he was traveling on to be searched. Nothing inconsistent with his claimed settlement plans for the Bastrop Track was discovered. Nonetheless, he was taken into the nearest town, where he was charged with treason. At this point, yet another specially convened grand jury refused to indict Burr, but following the jury's dismissal, when Burr demanded to be discharged by the judge, the judge ordered him to renew bail or be held. Burr posted bail again, but seeing the writing on the wall, and possibly fearing for his life, he made a run for it, only to be captured by soldiers on February 19th, and this time transported back east for trial. While Burr was en route, Jefferson was fuming over the recent Bowman decision, but had considered it enough to know that if he was serious about trying Burr for treason, he couldn't do that in the capital. Because the government's case was to suppose that the initial staging point for Burr's expedition had actually been an island belonging to an unindicted co-conspirator named Blenderhassett, which was considered part of Virginia, it was believed that the appropriate jurisdiction for a trial would be the Fifth Circuit Court in Richmond, which was presided over by, wait for it, wait for it, Chief Justice John Marshall. On March 26th, Burr was arraigned before Marshall and his colleague, Federal District Court Judge Cyrus Griffin, on two counts, commencing a military campaign against Spain and treason. The treason charge was predicated on the idea that Burr had assembled, on the aforementioned Blenderhassett's Island, a force of armed men meant to attack New Orleans. The very first question was bail. After several days of pretrial arguments, on April 1st, Marshall delivered a decision. He said there was sufficient evidence to hold Burr over the Spanish expedition, and a grand jury should consider that charge. But following the Bowman decision, Marshall couldn't believe the lack of evidence brought to corroborate the government's allegation of treason. He said, Treason may be machinated in secret, but it can only be perpetrated in open day and in the eye of the world. The assembling of forces to levy war is a visible transaction, and numbers must witness it. Several months have elapsed since this fact did occur, if it ever occurred. More than five weeks have elapsed since the Supreme Court declared the necessity of proving the fact. If it exists, why is it not proven? Marshall here is hammering at the same point he'd made in Bowman. That is the gulf between a conspiracy to commit treason and the overt act itself. Marshall didn't understand why, if the government had evidence to prove this, they weren't providing it, and he didn't believe that they had failed to seek such evidence. He was therefore forced to conclude that the evidence simply did not exist. There very well might be reasons to suspect that Burr had treasonable designs, but designs are thoughts. The Constitution requires those treasonous thoughts to become the levying of war against the United States, which had not occurred. Therefore, the treason charge was dismissed and bail for plotting war against Spain was set at $10,000. Marshall wasn't a fool, nor did he harbor any sympathies for Burr. 
but he had reasons for being such a stickler for a high evidentiary standard regarding treason. You may recall back when he'd been sent by President Adams to treat with France, and had seen political justice, the fruits of the coup of Fructidor, administered by the French Directory with his own eyes. And just as he'd been opposed to the Alien and Sedition Acts for allowing the federal government to target and persecute political opponents, he now was wary of allowing treason to become a club too easily reached for by the government to hit political opponents over the head with, saying, As treason is the most atrocious offense which can be committed against the political body, so it is the charge which is most capable of being employed as the instrument of those malignant and vindictive passions which may rage in the bosoms of contending parties struggling for power. From the outset of the proceedings, Jefferson had taken a disproportionately active role in the prosecution than was or really is expected of a president, and he was absolutely apoplectic when he learned that the treason charges against Burr had been dismissed. Convinced as he was of Burr's guilt, he wasn't able to see Marshall's decision as anything other than partisan obstruction, and in an incredible April 20th letter to his frenemy, Senator William Branch Giles, that one of the sources called one of the most damning pieces of correspondence insofar as the president's disregard for civil liberties is concerned, Jefferson savaged the ruling. He wrote, Doubt in the public mind in the present effective state of the proof is not wonderful, and this has been sedulously encouraged by tricks of the judges. The Federalists, too, give all their aid, making Burr's cause their own, mortified only that he did not separate the Union or overturn the government, and proving that had he had a little dawn of success, they would have joined him to introduce his object, their favorite monarchy, as they would any other enemy, foreign or domestic, who could rid them of this hateful republic for any other government in exchange. Mr. Marshall says, More than five weeks have elapsed since the opinion of the Supreme Court has declared the necessity of proving the overt acts. If they exist, why are they not proved? In what terms of decency can we speak of this? As if an express could go from Natchez or the mouth of the Cumberland and return in five weeks, to do which has never taken less than twelve? All this, however, will work well. The nation will judge both the offender and the judges for themselves. If a member of the executive or legislature does wrong, the day is never far distant when the people will remove him. They will see then and amend the error in our Constitution, which makes any branch independent of the nation. They will see that one of the great coordinate branches of the government setting itself in opposition to the other two and to the common sense of the nation, proclaims impunity to that class of offenders which endeavors to overturn the Constitution, and are themselves protected in it by the Constitution itself. For impeachment is a farce which will not be tried again. If their protection of Burr produces this amendment, it will do more good than his condemnation would have done. At this point, Jefferson doubled down on nailing Burr for treason, and began devoting time in cabinet meetings to discussing the trial, to locating additional funds in order to get possible witnesses to Richmond, and in providing the prosecution with a stack of signed, blank presidential pardons to barter with in exchange for testimony against the former vice president. The government's case was argued by U.S. Attorney George Hay, who was assisted by William Wirt and one other attorney, whose name I won't bother you with. In opposition stood a formidable defense team, which not only included Burr's own considerable legal acumen, but was anchored by our old friend Luther Martin. On May 22nd, the grand jury was convened, and three days later, Hay gave notice that he intended to resubmit his earlier motion, that Burr be held for treason. After hearing arguments, Marshall agreed to permit the grand jury to decide the matter, and a recess was called on May 28th. 
Once more in session on June 9th, Burr's team demanded the administration turn over whatever documents in their possession relevant to the case, as such information was vital to constructing a defense. The defense suggested that if the prosecution wouldn't do this voluntarily, then the court should order it to be done. This notion that the state, as a party to the case, might be compelled to turn over documents in the administration's possession as part of the process we've formalized over the years and call discovery, seemed to catch Hay flat-footed, because he blurted out that the prosecution would voluntarily comply if the court thought such papers were relevant. Marshall pointed out the obvious. He couldn't know what papers were relevant until they'd been produced. It was his preference that the prosecution and the defense work this matter out amongst themselves, but he said he'd issue a subpoena if it was something Hay agreed the court could do. At this point, Hay seemed to collect himself and realize that he'd received no instructions from Jefferson on this point, and putting two and two together, he realized that his boss, the president, probably wouldn't appreciate him ceding that power to the courts without at least running it by him first. So as Marshall asked for oral arguments to decide the matter, Hay shot a letter to Jefferson urging him to voluntarily produce papers ASAP. Luther Martin took center stage to argue the necessity of obtaining such papers, papers that Jefferson had used so freely to condemn his client, saying, The president has undertaken to prejudge my client by declaring, Of his guilt there can be no doubt. He has assumed the knowledge of the supreme being himself and pretended to search the heart of my highly respected friend. He has proclaimed him a traitor. He has let slip the dogs of war, the hellhounds of prosecution, to hunt down my friend. And would this President of the United States, who has raised all this absurd clamor, pretend to keep back the papers which are wanted for this trial, where life itself is at stake? It is a sacred principle that in all such cases the accused has the right to all the evidence which is necessary for his case. The prosecution's response, it won't surprise many to hear, was pretty much an argument for executive privilege, which, to Jefferson's dismay, even cited Marbury v. Madison in support. Finally, on June 13th, Marshall rendered his decision. He said, The genius and character of our laws and usages are friendly, not to condemnation at all events, but to a fair and impartial trial and they consequently allow to the accused the right of preparing the means to secure such a trial. Marshall acknowledged that there might be in the future times to ask legitimate questions about making some documents public, but in the current circumstances of a criminal trial, and not just any criminal trial, but the treason trial of the former vice president of the United States, he couldn't reasonably see how releasing papers relevant to this prosecution to Burr's defense team could endanger public safety, saying, The propriety of introducing any paper into a case as testimony must depend on the character of the paper, not the character of the person who holds it. And he added, Much has been said about the disrespect to the chief magistrate, which is implied by this motion and by such a decision of it as the law is believed to require. These observations will be very truly answered by the declaration that this court feels many, perhaps peculiar motives, for manifesting as guarded a respect for the chief magistrate of the Union as is compatible with its official duties. To go beyond these would exhibit a conduct which would deserve some other appellation than the term respect. In other words, the subpoena would be issued against the president just as if they were anybody else, and the court, not the president, would have the final word. To his credit, Jefferson forwarded the documents that he thought relevant. He claimed, In a spirit of conciliation, and with the desire to avoid conflicts of authority between the high branches of government, which would discredit it. But if you were to ask him, he'd probably say that he was not compelled by the court to do this, but really was voluntarily acting in order to deprive the defense of a spectacle 
or a battle of giants engaged in a great constitutional struggle which would distract the attention of the nation. Meanwhile, government witnesses had steadily been trickling into Richmond, and finally on June 24th, after hearing testimony from 48 individuals, the foreman of the grand jury announced that Aaron Burr of the City of New York and the State of New York, attorney at law, under the protection of the laws of the United States, and owing allegiance and fidelity to the same United States, not having the fear of God before his eyes, nor weighing the duty of his said allegiance, but being moved and seduced by the instigation of the devil, wickedly devising and intending the peace and tranquility of the same United States to disturb and to stir, move, and excite insurrection, rebellion, and war against the said United States. Burr had been indicted for treason, and also charged with instigating war against Spain for good measure, and was taken into custody. Two days later, he pled not guilty, and the trial was set for early August. Now, the full indictment focuses on the activities at Blenderhassett's Island, which occurred on December 10, 1806. It charged that on that date, Burr had gathered an armed man who, at his instigation, traitorously and in a warlike and hostile manner, arrayed and disposed themselves against the United States. The problem with this is that Burr hadn't been there, and this was a fact agreed upon by both the prosecution and the defense. And the thing is, this was all sort of John Marshall's fault. Well, the fault of the language that he'd used in ex parte Bowman anyway. When he had towed the constructive treason line in that decision, he'd said, If war be actually levied, all of those who perform any part, however remote from the scene of action, and who are actually leagued in the general conspiracy, are to be considered as traitors. This implies a much looser standard than is written in the Constitution, and the grand jury had run with it. Marshall, though, was unsure of that application to the Burr case. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The trial convened on August 3rd. The venue had been moved to the Virginia Chamber of Delegates to accommodate the large crowds clamoring to witness the event. Hay opened the trial for the prosecution and right away began hammering on about the Bowman decision. He said it didn't matter that Burr was absent from Blenderhassett's Island because he was the puppet master, responsible for the assembling of armed men for a traitorous purpose. Hay then began calling witnesses whom Burr had spoken to prior to the December 10th date alleged in the indictment. The defense immediately objected to this testimony, saying it was irrelevant as an act of treason hadn't even been established. 
this was highly irregular. After extended arguments, Marshall ruled that the prosecution had every right to present its case as it wished, so long as the testimony to establish Burr's intent remained focused on the specific alleged acts in the indictment and was not simply an attempt to portray Burr as having a generally evil disposition. Unfortunately for the government, its parade of witnesses proved of little value. William Eaton said, Concerning certain transactions which are said to have happened at Blenderhassett's Island, or any agency which Aaron Burr may be supposed to have had in them, I know nothing. Commodore Thomas Truxton said, I know nothing of overt acts, treasonable designs, or conversations on the part of Colonel Burr. Twelve more witnesses spoke, adding nothing of substance, before the prosecution finished, and the defense again objected to this collateral testimony, making a motion for its suspension, since an overt act of treason still had not been proven. In oral arguments on this motion, the defense counterattacked, focusing on how narrowly the Constitution defined treason, and the necessity of that, lest the party in power possess the means of subjecting and destroying the other. Several attorneys from both sides entered the fray, but it was Luther Martin who stood out. Speaking for fourteen hours over three days, Luther Martin delivered an oratorical hurricane of precedents and statutes in a performance worthy of Patrick Henry. William Wirt performed well for the prosecution, arguing for the common law doctrine of constructive treason, in a speech where he rhetorically asked, Who is Blenderhassett? before going on to paint the picture of a hapless, quixotic, romantic Irishman that Burr had made into his pliant tool before reminding listeners of the ancient maxim that what one man does through another, he does himself. Arguments on the motion concluded on Saturday, the 29th of August. Marshall put the court into recess until Monday and sat down to write his ruling. It would turn out to be the longest of his career, topping 25,000 words. At 9 a.m. on Monday, when Marshall gaveled the court to order and prepared to deliver his decision, the Chamber of Delegates was packed to the rafters. After he praised the efforts of both sides and moved past the pleasantries, Marshall began by noting that the prosecution's case rested on the notion that Burr had assembled a force against the United States in a manner which met the Constitution's requirement for levying war against it. However, he proceeded to pick apart the prosecution's foundational assumption of constructive treason, saying the little proof they offered for his presence at the overt act was illusory. They say only that the defendant caused, or in Marshall's phraseology, procured the assemblage. It was indisputable that Burr was not on the island at the time the supposed overt act of levying war upon the United States allegedly took place, yet the entire indictment itself was predicated on Burr being there when there was no evidence of his presence. He said, If in one case the presence of the individual make the guilt of the assemblage his guilt, and in the other case the procurement of the individual make the guilt of the assemblage his guilt, then presence and procurement are equally component parts of the overt act and equally require two witnesses. No presumptive evidence, no facts from which presence may be conjectured or inferred will satisfy the Constitution and the law. If the procurement take the place of presence and become part of the overt act, then no presumptive evidence, no facts, from which the procurement may be conjectured or inferred, can satisfy the Constitution and the law. The mind is not to be led to the conclusion that the individual was present by a train of conjectures, of inferences, or of reasoning. The fact must be proved by two witnesses. If it be said that the advising or procurement of treason is a secret transaction which can scarcely ever be proven, in the manner required by this opinion, the answer, which will readily suggest itself, is that the difficulty of proving a fact will not justify conviction without proof. Marshall wondered if the indictment itself wasn't fatally flawed, as it was literally the only thing that alleged Burr's actual presence at Blenderhassett's Island. 
What's more, such an indictment, not entirely based in reality, had violated Burr's Sixth Amendment rights. The Sixth Amendment to the Constitution required that, in all criminal prosecutions, the accused should be informed of the nature and cause of the accusations against them. According to Marshall, there was no way Burr could properly defend himself against what was essentially a fake indictment. Marshall also sought to clarify the Bowman decision and differentiate that case from Burr's. He said that the opinion in Bowman does not touch the case of a person who advises or procures an assemblage and does nothing further. The advising, certainly, and perhaps the procuring, is more in the nature of a conspiracy to levy war than the actual levying of war. According to the opinion, it is not enough to be leagued in the conspiracy, and that war be levied, but it is also necessary to perform a part. That part is the act of levying war. That part, it is true, may be minute. It may not be the actual appearance in arms, and it may be remote from the scene of action, that is, from the place where the army is assembled, but it must be a part, and that part must be performed by a person who is leagued in the conspiracy. This part, however minute or remote, constitutes the overt act of which alone the person who performs it can be convicted. John had been speaking for over four hours and was finally pivoting to address the defense's motion to suspend testimony. He continued, That this court dares not usurp power is most true. That this court dares not shrink from its duty is not less true. No man is desirous of placing himself in a disagreeable situation. No man is desirous of becoming the peculiar subject of calumny. No man, might he let the bitter cup pass from him without self-reproach, would drain it to the bottom. But if he has no choice in the case, if there is no alternative presented to him but a dereliction of duty, or the opprobrium of those who are denominated the world, he merits the contempt as well as the indignation of his country, who can hesitate which to embrace. He said that there was no question that the court had the right to determine the admissibility of testimony, and after considering the arguments of each side and the law, the court must side with the defendant's motion. No testimony relative to the conduct or declarations of the prisoner elsewhere and subsequent to the transactions on Blenderhassett's Island could be admitted, because such testimony, he said, being in its nature merely corroborative and incompetent to prove the overt act itself, is irrelevant until there be proof of the overt act by two witnesses. So Marshall instructed the jury to set that testimony aside and apply the law as he'd just explained it to the facts of the case and charge them to render a verdict of guilty or not guilty for treason. After brief deliberations, the jury returned a verdict of not guilty. As relieved as Burr must have been, he wasn't immediately out of the woods, as charges were still pending against him for inciting war against Spain, and he'd still be in custody until tried for that. That trial began on September 9th, but was a complete anticlimax. After six days, in which the prosecution called 50 witnesses, all of whom failed to produce anything incriminating, George Hay finally decided enough was enough, and sought to dismiss the indictment. But Burr protested and demanded that the jury not be excused until rendering a verdict. He wanted to ensure that he couldn't ever be charged or prosecuted for this crime again, and he wouldn't be, as he was found not guilty. Jefferson nearly spontaneously combusted over the treason acquittal and really didn't comport himself terribly well in the aftermath. He blamed John Marshall for the outcome and told Hay that the Chief Justice's nefarious plans were not just designed to let the guilty Burr go free, but to also suppress evidence from getting out to the public. As Gene Smith points out, it's not clear what evidence Jefferson is talking about, since if Hay was in possession of any, he surely would have introduced it. But the Sage of Monticello was just getting warmed up. He hoped to use the Burr treason to reignite the Republican fight against the judiciary, but that was a fight that the legislature had clearly put in its rearview mirror. Case in point was later that fall, 
when Jefferson sent the trial records to Congress. In the message that accompanied these, he said, You will be enabled to judge whether the defect was in the testimony, in the law, or in the administration of the law. And wherever it shall be found, the legislature alone can apply or originate the remedy. Now this language is eerily reminiscent of what I called the unofficial official order that Jefferson gave to William Branch Giles last episode ahead of the impeachment of Samuel Chase. Only this time, Jefferson's insinuations were ignored. Just because he wasn't impeached, of course, doesn't mean that John Marshall comes out of the Burr trials without a scratch. He would always consider it the worst experience of his long judicial career, calling it the most unpleasant case which has ever been brought before a judge in this, or perhaps in any other country, which affected to be governed by laws. He was predictably kicked around in the Republican press, and his effigy was burned in Baltimore. Marshall's rulings during Burr's trial can and have been criticized as inconsistent with prior rulings that he'd made. In deciding to subpoena Jefferson for records, he contradicted a part of his Marbury decision, where he'd acknowledged the existence of the very executive discretion his subpoena now arguably ran over. When Marshall ruled on presence and procurement, he'd referred to each as a component part of the overt act and insinuated that each component part required two witnesses. And constitutional scholars have taken him to task for this, saying that this is a plainly ridiculous assertion. If you're going to say that there can be two component parts of an overt act and that each requires two witnesses, why not make it 20 component parts and assume that the Constitution just never intended for anyone to ever be found guilty of treason? because you're just making stuff up at this point. Some look at Marshall's attempts to make his previous decision in Bullman compatible with his position in the Burr case regarding constructive treason as clumsy and unconvincing. On this point, Corwin goes so far as to twist the knife, pointing out that 30 years later, Marshall's own friend and protege, and really the defender of his legacy, Joseph Story, when searching for a definition of treason, looked to Bowman, bypassing the Burr case altogether. The Burr trial was not John Marshall's finest hour. It may be the blight on his otherwise sterling judicial record, as some have said. His ruling on the suspension of testimony, though his longest, is not his best. It's repetitive, and at times is a bit rambling. But I don't, and assume most others don't, labor under the delusion that those who came before us were somehow infallible or omniscient, and I wouldn't demonize someone for not living up to that standard. Jefferson hemmed and hawed about partisan motivations, but I don't see how these can be substantiated. Burr was a Republican, an out-of-favor Republican to be sure, but he was also the man who killed the father of the Federalist Party, so at best that argument is a bit of a push. And though one can see inconsistencies between Marshall's position in the Bullman and Burr cases, and how, in a series of evidentiary decisions, Marshall seemed to disadvantage the state's prosecution, the suggestion that he is essentially turning a blind eye to treason against the United States in order to embarrass President Jefferson isn't compatible with what we've seen of his personal nature up to this point or his patriotic nationalism, or his track record of honorable public service, and the demonstrable concern he's displayed for the dignity of the federal bench since becoming Chief Justice. A more generous view would point out that a thread of consistency actually does run between Bowman and Burr, and this is Marshall's steady concern that treason remain an unwieldy tool for the government to bring to bear against its opponents and I see support for this in the fact that Marshall was legitimately flabbergasted and slightly distressed by the fact that the same level of problematic evidence already deemed insufficient to convict Bullman and Swartboot was brought against Burr. And the reason for this was rather than inspiring the prosecution to present more substantive evidence 
as he had hoped his decision would, the administration instead tried to use his words to find a back door to Burr's conviction. However, whether it was correct or incorrect of him to not allow the use of that back door, I will leave to your judgment. His decisions have been questioned for 210 years, and I doubt that that's likely to stop. But what's not debatable was that he did not allow it. So, as 1807 ended, Aaron Burr was a free man, fleeing to Europe to avoid debtors. Thomas Jefferson was an angry man, who announced his plans not to seek a third term, and began preparing for retirement. And John Marshall was a weary man, ready for a break, and hoping his next docket would be less eventful. Okay, we're going to stop there today. Thank you for all your patience. This episode took much more time to write and produce than I expected. And this was compounded uh, by the fact that I'm also writing the patron-only episode, which is only about half done, but is already as long as the script for this episode. So yeah, that's going to be a massive bonus episode coming uh, the patron's way, and, and I'm okay with that because they deserve it. And a final note, a great friend of the show, Zach Twomley, and you might remember Zach from his appearance uh, on American Biography to discuss the XYZ affair. Well, his podcast, When Diplomacy Fails, is celebrating its fifth birthday. And as part of the celebrations, uh, I'm going to appear on a soon-to-be-published guest episode discussing the Mexican-American War. So yeah, keep your eye out on that feed, and uh, be sure not to miss it. As always, remember you can follow American Biography on Facebook or on Twitter at American underscore bio. The website is www.americanbiography.webs.com. And if you need to get a hold of me for any reason, my email is AmericanBiographyPodcast at gmail.com. All right, everybody, that's it. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope to talk to you soon. Thank you.